Philippians chapter 1, we'll look at verses 12 through 30 this morning. I have a very fitting message to the time that we've seen uh, this past week. Um, I'm going to start off by just reading, uh, going down further in chapter 1, and just reading a pretty staggering statement uh, that Paul makes in Philippians chapter 1. So we'll start in verse 12, but we'll actually begin but it's by looking at verse uh, 29 this morning. Paul says this, For it has been granted... To you, that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let me read that again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The original word for granted actually means is to be understood as to be given favor as a, a, a get, to be given as favor in kindness for free the word granted means to be given as a favor in kindness for free in other words paul sees suffering as a kind gift from god most of the time we don't see it that way correct? We don't see suffering. It's God, you are so kind to me by allowing me to go through this. I am broke between the months of November and February, and here's why. All of my family's birthdays are November through February, and there's Christmas. So Gideon is November 10th, Christmas is December 25th, Finn's birthday is February 3rd. Jess's birthday is February 4th. And so what if I were to say, when to save money this year, I'm not going to get them anything. And I'm just going to give them a card and say, I'm going to make sure that you guys suffer as much as possible for these few months. <laughs> what would you do? Hopefully you would leave the church because it's led by a psychopath, Right? You would call social services. You would try to protect my family. Hopefully, that's what you would do. Because that would be insane, correct? So why does God get away with that? Okay, if I'm the father of my children, if I'm the husband to Jess, and I can't get away with that, why does God get away with that? Why does Paul say, God, you gave me this suffering, and I am thankful for it, and I I consider it a kind Gift. How does Paul do that? Well, Paul has this unique perspective of suffering. He has this tool of understanding suffering can be a gift from God, and God can use it as His kindness, and it causes Him to love God more. So, so how do we have that this morning? Don't you want that this morning? Don't you want that ability? Imagine if you had that ability. It would feel almost like a superpower if I could take suffering and be thankful for it and seeing suffering as a kind gift to me, man, wouldn't that just change the way that you live your life? Wouldn't that change the way that you suffer? Wouldn't that change the way that you see a a hurricane or destruction to your home? Wouldn't that change the way that you see death or sickness or any type of hardship that you face, persecution, relationships, breaks up, breakups, divorce, everything? Wouldn't that change everything for you if you could have that? Wouldn't that change everything? Anybody want that this morning? 
I mean, I want that. I want what Paul has when he says, it's been granted to me. This is a kind gift from you to me that I'm suffering. I I want that, Integrity Church. Hopefully, you want that. And so here's the reality. If you embrace this truth this morning, this can change your life. This is the tool that God can give you to cause you to suffer well for his sake. And you can look at suffering as a kind gift from God. And that's my goal this morning. And so here's what's happening in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is a book that Paul is talking to people who are about to suffer. And Paul is telling them how much he loves them. Chapter 1, he's like, man, I wish I was with you. He thinks about people like we looked at the first week when we looked at Acts. We looked at how the church of Philippi began. He talks about Lydia, the wealthy lady that he and his other missionary friends stayed with to plant the gospel. We talked about the slave girl who the demon was, she was demon possessed, but then the demon was cast out of her. We talked about the Philippian jailer. He becomes a believer in his whole household. Paul's talking to all of these people in Philippians chapter 1, and then other believers who were radically transformed by the gospel. And he's telling them, man, I wish I was with you. He tells tells them in the beginning of chapter one, I am praying for you. He tells them in the beginning of chapter one, man, I hope your love abounds more and more. I hope you continue to grow in love. And then what begins to happen is starting in verse 12, he begins to shift. He stops telling them how grateful he is for them, that he's praying for them. And then he begins to tell them how he's doing. And what's been happening with Paul so far is he's faced a tremendous amount of persecution, tremendous amount of beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But Paul at this point is on house arrest. And that means Paul is chained to an imperial Roman guard for every four hours all day long. So every four hours, it's a different imperial guard chained to Paul. They they go through shifts. And as this is taking place, Paul is writing to the church, telling them how he is. It's not like Paul has the luxury of calling them on the phone. He doesn't get one phone call a day and to talk to his lawyer or anything like that. He has to write these letters to tell them how he's doing. And so while he's writing to them, starting in verse 12, you get a sense of Paul's perspective of suffering. That Paul sees suffering different than most of us. And so this is what we're going to see as Paul's telling them what's happening in his life beginning in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his current house arrest, but also all that has happened to him, all of his suffering, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul is saying, hey, you guys know me as someone who's faced a tremendous amount of suffering. My life is marked by suffering. He says, and all of it has been to advance the gospel. What has Paul been through? Well, he actually talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11. And when he talks about it, he actually jokes. He's like, I'm kind of a madman. Like the amount of suffering that I've been through is I'm kind of a madman. It's interesting that Paul is the man who suffers more than anyone else in in the New Testament, but he's also the person who talks about joy more than anyone else in the New Testament. But look at what he says, 2 Corinthians 11, starting verse 23. I am talking like a madman with far greater laborers, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. At five times I received at the hand of the Jews and 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At, at, at night and a day adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from our own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You didn't know Paul was a rapper. There it is. In toil and hardships, though many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Look at what Paul has faced. Paul is the guy that in a Bible study, someone says, hey, how's everybody doing? Paul opens up with this and then no one wants to share after. Who could beat that? There's even another story in Acts 28 where Paul is shipwrecked. It's one of the situations where the boat actually begins to fall apart and people who can't swim are trying to grab onto boards and try to get back to safety. It's kind of like a Titanic situation. I think Rose was selfish, by the way. She should have let him on the door or whatever that was. But, but they're out at sea and they're trying to swim. And Paul finally gets to this island, this remote island, and he's freezing cold and he's trying to gather wood for a fire. And as he's going to gather wood for a fire, a viper bites him. And it's so bad that the natives of that island think that Paul, because of the, all the hardships that he'd faced, they think the guy's cursed. I think, man, how could this happen to someone? Of course, later on, the viper didn't harm him because God was with him, and they actually thought he was a god after that. So it was a really unique story, Acts 28. You should read it. But Paul's life was marked by suffering. And notice how his perspective is. He says, I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He says, what's happened to me, all the hardships that I face have served for one purpose, and I'm thankful for it, it's to advance the gospel. Advance, actually, the translation means the furtherance, or another way to see it is to cut or to strike forward. What it's done is to cut or to strike forward the gospel. What does that mean? Well, it's actually a lumberjack term, and what would happen was lumberjacks, the armies would hire lumberjacks Because if they were to travel and to infiltrate a country, they would hire lumberjacks to go and cut through the woods before the army would then come through. And so they would set a path for the army to cut through. So they would send in a group of lumberjacks, and they would go and cut this forest, cut a path to the forest that the army would come through. And so when he says to advance the gospel, he's saying to cut forward with an axe, to cut through. He's saying, I've laid the tracks for the gospel to go forward. This is why Paul, how he sees his suffering. He says, God has caused me to go through this hardship so that the gospel can go forward here in Rome. And it's beautiful. Imagine if you were a lumberjack. You're thinking, my, my purpose in doing this is so meaningless. All they're asking me to do is cut down trees. But it's essential so that the army can move forward. It's essential for the gospel to go forward, that believers suffer. And I tell you that this morning because none of us have any idea of all the intricacies that God is doing when we suffer. Matt Chandler says this in the, in the book Explicit Gospel. He says, trying to figure out God is like trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. I thoroughly agree with that. 
Friends, if you knew what God was doing, if he could just give you a snapshot of of what he's doing throughout the world and why he's allowing or causing believers to suffer, if he could just give you a snapshot, none of us would have the mental or emotional capacity to handle it. And even if he could give you that amount of faith to have the emotional or mental capacity to handle it, where would our need for faith actually lie? Where would we need to rely on God? Where would we need to turn to Scripture? Where would we need to pray? Where would we need other believers to to build us up and help us grow in Christ? No, all of this is faith. All of this is a part of growing in faith together. And, And Paul understands this. Paul understands this beauty of God's sovereignty and the mystery of God's sovereignty. And this is why he has the gospel perspective. This is why he says in verse 13, he says, So it has been known... Throughout the whole imperial guard and to all all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. Now, we have talked about Paul as being chained to the prison guard and how difficult that must be. Especially if you're an introvert in this room, you know how hard that would be to be chained to someone 24 7 all day long you're chained to somebody no privacy nothing you're you're chained to somebody all day long what we haven't talked about is think about how not only how is it difficult for paul but think about how difficult it would be for a prison guard i mean think about these guys they're doing everything they can to escape christianity to escape the gospel and just be loyal to rome and who do they get chained to paul could they be a worse person to be chained to if you're trying to run away from God. I mean, imagine every four hours, man, I got to get this guy again. I got to be chained up to Paul again. I got to hear the chain analogy again, how he wants to break the chains and I could be set free. I've got to hear that again. Imagine the tension of each of these prison guards. And Paul says, it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying, hey, All those clowns that I've been chained to, yeah, they all heard the gospel. And they're all talking about it together. And he's like, look at how God uses this suffering in my life in this small way to advance and forward the gospel. And he says, and not only that, it's it's caused a boldness. He says, "And, and most of my brothers having more confidence, verse 14, in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, People have heard of Paul's persistence even in prison. And it's created a culture among other believers in Rome of gospel faithfulness. You want to know why I believe Christianity is true? Is it true just because it's made a change in my life? Absolutely, 100%. Without Christ, I would be dead in my sins. Without Christ, I would be a completely different person. I totally believe that. But one of the reasons why I think Christianity is true on top of that is that how Christianity has endured persecution since its inception. Since the very beginning of Christianity, it's, it's suffered. It's been persecuted. It's been trying to be put an end to over and over again. Centuries after centuries, we've seen persecution. And every time the persecution has turned up, the gospel has always moved forward. Because it strengthens the church. And so when we see that, what does it do to other believers? Well, it helps us. It helps us be more motivated to share the gospel. Just this past week, I 
spoke with our church planner that we sent out, who's living in a country that is unreached, where he's living is putting more and more restrictions on the gospel moving forward. When he went and we sent him out a few years ago, the country that he was in was more open. Now it's becoming aggressively closed. And our friend right now has the threat of at any point in the middle of the night, the government of which the country that he's in could literally come in and take everything he has and send him and his wife and his children home. They would interrogate them for hours. They would separate him from his wife and his children from their parents. They could separate them to where they send one of them home and not the other. And it's a really difficult situation that we need to continue to go before the Lord and for. He's even seen close friends of his that he's spoken to. People have gone in in the middle of the night, burn their Bibles, burn any Christian literature they have, keep their possessions, and send them home. But as I spoke to him on the phone, he said one of the most encouraging things that he's seen is how other believers, indigenous, local believers, are still remaining faithful in spite of all the opposition. And they have to live there. And they have to face that every single day. And so what does it do with my friend? What causes our friend to want to stay there and be faithful? And every time I get off the phone with my friend, you know what that does to me? It gives me a passion to want to share the gospel and be more bold. I mean, if believers in a hostile country are standing firm, why am I so fearful to share the gospel in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Integrity Church, we should pray for the passion that Paul had to see the gospel move forward because when it does that and we become more bold, it creates a culture of boldness and a culture of gospel faithfulness. And this is why I want to be more passionate about raising up and sending out more missionaries because those missionaries that will go and share the gospel to hostile places, it it calls all of us out of what is comfortable to us and it calls us to want to embrace a life of suffering so that we can see the gospel move forward. This is why he continues in verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in it I will rejoice, yet I will rejoice. Now notice Paul, he's saying, okay, some preach Christ out of rivalry and others from goodwill, but but in the end, I am just thankful that the gospel is going forward. Now, I've even heard this, this this passage to take out of context. I want to be careful here because I've heard that people use this verse to really give allowance for really horrific sermons. Like I've heard sermons before that are heretical, but they've mentioned the name of Jesus. And so some people quote this, well, as long as the name of Jesus is mentioned, that's okay. I'm glad the, the, the name of Jesus went forward. No, no, no. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, hey, it's okay to preach horrible sermons that are heretical. It's not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying he would say the opposite. Paul is the same guy in Philippians chapter 3 who's going to call false teachers dogs. That is not a compliment. Paul in Galatians chapter 1 is going to say, hey, if 
an, a, another gospel is proclaimed, even if an angel comes down from heaven and preaches a different gospel, let that person or let that angel be accursed. Paul says that. Paul cares a lot about gospel clarity. So what's Paul talking about? Well, Paul was a pretty popular person in Philippi. Paul was a well-known leader. And so after Paul leaves, after being there for 18 months, a lot of people have tried to come in and replace Paul. It's kind of like there's only one, Michael Jordan, but poor LeBron. He's just trying to be Michael Jordan. He's never going to be Michael Jordan, right? Amen. Good. Um, <laughs> but this is, this is Paul. Paul knows, hey, there's other people trying to come up and be the next. He says, man, they're doing it out of rivalry. They're doing it out of selfish ambition. He says, hey, but at least the content of the gospel is being proclaimed. And he's saying, so I'm rejoicing. Some people do it out of goodwill. Some people are doing it for the right motives. But hey, motives aside, at least the gospel is going forward. And this is why he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That in that I rejoice. And in that I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. I love this because if you think of Paul's transition, he's seen ups and he's seen downs. He's just thankful that the gospel can move forward. Remember when he planted the church in Philippi, when we saw in the book of Acts, he stays where? He stays in, in um, Lydia's home. And Lydia is this wealthy woman. He would have had all the luxuries of what it meant to stay in Lydia's home, the, the swimming pool, the ribeye steaks, the caviar, all the nice wine. He would have been able to have all that. And then what happens next? You see the next transition. He's in prison. And Paul's the kind of guy who says, man, if I am at Lydia's house eating ribeye steaks and hanging out in her pool, I rejoice. But if I am in prison with a Philippian jailer eating Burger King, I still rejoice. Because God is still good to me. Either way, he says, I will rejoice. And he continues in verse 18, the very end. He says, yes, I will rejoice. Pick up in 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, which is really deliverance. He's like any outcome, life or death. It's my either eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, and here's the crazy statement, or by what? Death. And so Paul is saying, if my life advances the gospel, praise God. And if I end up dying, and then somehow God uses my death to further advance the gospel, praise God. Believer, imagine if we all had that perspective. Imagine how generous we would be with our possessions. Imagine how sacrificial we would be with others. Imagine how much love and compassion we would have with others because we're just saying, hey, whatever it takes for the gospel to go forward, whether it be my life or my death, praise God. And from there we get the famous line, verse 21. What does verse 21 say? For me to live is what? Christ. And to die is what? Gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now let's break that down really quick. First of all, for me to live is Christ. I like that Paul personalizes it. He says, for me to live is Christ. Of course it was. Paul was living for, Paul, for Paul, living for Christ was no other option. Before Christ, Paul was a man named Saul. He hated Christianity. He wanted to do his best to stop Christianity from spreading. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul, we're told the story of Paul, Saul, 
on his way to Damascus, literally on a mission that would attempt to stop the gospel from moving forward. And then we're told in Acts chapter 9 that there on the Damascus road, Paul is confronted by God. Let me, let me just read that. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. I want to show you why Paul says this statement, for me to live as Christ. I want to show you that he has no other option. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, is this Paul looking for God? Is he praying to God? Is he going to a Bible study? Is he checking out sermons online? No. He's actually going to persecute more Christians because he was a God-hater. Who pursued Paul? Did Paul pursue God or did God pursue Paul? God pursued Paul. Suddenly, a, a light from heaven shone around him and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. By the way, he realized at this point that my sin offends God. And that's for every believer. For you to become a believer, you have to know that your sin offends God. This is what Paul had to come to the realization of. He says in verse 9, verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank. What does Paul or Saul have to offer God? He hates God. He's at war with God. He's trying to persecute Christians. He's trying to put Christians to death. What does he have to offer God? Is there any righteousness in Saul? No. He's an arrogant fool. What does God do with arrogant fools? I'm glad you asked. He humbles them. And so what happens? He's humbled. And as he's humbled, God blinds him. He didn't eat or drink for three whole days, and he's led to Damascus by his followers. And what ends up happening later in Acts chapter 9 is there's a man named Ananias that God gives a vision to, and he tells him, hey, Paul is coming to see you. I want you to go, and I want you to meet Paul. And this is... Ananias thinking, there is no way, because he would have been known as a terrorist. It would be like, hey, I want you to go and hang out with ISIS today. That's the, that's the fate that it would require for Paul to hang out with this guy, or, or Ananias to hang out with Saul. And so what happens is the language that God uses when he tells Ananias is what I want you to see. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, for Paul, or for Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him, listen to this, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What does Jesus call Saul before he becomes Paul? He says, He's valuable to me. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And his life is no longer going to be about himself. His life is going to be about making my name great. And he's going to suffer for making my name great. Now, what is so interesting about that? It seems like a death penalty. It seems like a punishment. But Paul, at the same time, is a man who has more joy. He's gladly the chosen instrument. He's gladly the one who will suffer 
for the name of Christ. Paul's also the man who says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ, what does it can do? He says, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he has died for all, that those who might uh, no longer might live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What happens when the love of Christ becomes a part of your life and you understand what Christ has accomplished for you when you were dead in your sins and now you're alive in Christ? What happens? He says the love of God controls you because if Christ died, you're going to die to him. You're going to die to yourself. So when Paul says to live as Christ, he had no other option. What else could he say? He's tried living for himself. It doesn't work. He says, for me to live is Christ. He had no other option. And guess what? Neither do you, believer. If you are in Christ this morning, there's no middle ground. There's no, okay, Christ is going to save me to get to heaven. I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to live for myself and do whatever I want. No, no, no. For you to live is Christ. You are a chosen instrument just like Paul. Your purpose is to suffer, which means to sacrifice for Christ, to make his name great, to make his name among the nations. And, and therein lies joy. Because when we make Christ the treasure, he becomes the treasure of our hearts. So for you to live is Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ. But he also says, to die is gain. What does that mean? Well, he impacts it. Verse 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me. Yet, which I, still, I, shall, uh, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, flesh is for more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What is his, what's far better for Paul, he says, being with Christ. For Christ, for Paul, Christ was his home. I love the language that he uses later on when he's talking to the church of Corinth. He says that we're living in a tent when we're here. He says, man, we're just here. We're just camping out. This is just camping out here. If he's in Lydia's house, enjoying all the luxuries that she has, he says, I'd rather be at home. If he's in prison, he says, I'd rather be at home. And so whatever perspective, whatever situation that you're in, our response as believers in Christ, believing that Christ is our true treasure, we say, I'd rather be at home. I'd rather be with Christ. Now take this perspective to heart. He has this eternal perspective of suffering, and he's content as long as the gospel goes forward. And what he then tries to do in verses 27 through 30 is really burn that into the hearts of the believers in Philippi and really in turn us today. So let's read it. 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it is granted to you, this is the verse that we started off with, it's granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that I saw, uh, that, that you saw, that I had, and now here that I still have. Now, I don't want to escape the weight of this text this morning. There's not just an individual truth to this, but there's also a corporate application, and here's what I mean. He's not just hoping that the individual members of the church get this. He's hoping that the entire church embraces this idea and it becomes the culture in the church. Look, in, look again, 27. He says, standing firm in one faith with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does he want to see happen in Philippi? He wants to see a culture of boldness for the gospel. He wants to see a culture of sacrifice for the gospel. Paul knows that suffering is about to come, and he knows that suffering is either going to make the church or break the church. I hear it all the time in in, in Christian culture. Man, that person used to walk with God, but then they had this amount of suffering, and they no longer walk with God. Look Look what that tragedy did to them. Friends, that's not what the tragedy did to them. Rather, suffering doesn't cause you to lose your faith. Suffering exposes what your faith really is. And for this reason, we can see suffering as a gift from God because suffering allows us to realize that we can't do it all, that we can't do it in and of ourselves, and we need to trust God. There's a lot of stories I would share here, but one of my favorites is about a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in the late 1800s. He was married to his wife, Anna, and they had multiple children, and their life started off as a success story. Then we're told that Horatio Spafford lost their, and his wife, Anna, lost their first son to scarlet fever, and, the, and then they had the great Chicago fire of 1871, which he lost most of his real estate and nearly lost everything. And you would think that that would be the end of his suffering because that would be enough suffering for most of us to bear. Losing a child would be one thing, but then losing all of your possessions would be another. Well, Horatio Spafford, being a wealthy, successful person, had a good friendship with D.L. Moody. He actually supported D.L. Moody's ministry. D.L. Moody was a well-known, famous evangelist in Chicago. D.L. Moody asked him shortly after these tragic events happened to go on tour with him to England as he began to preach in England. And so Horatio Spafford was going to join D.L. Moody by, by ship. And he and his wife Anna and his four daughters were going to jump on the ship to meet D.L. Moody in England. And as this was happening, the very last minute, Horatio Spafford was forced to deal with some business in Chicago, but then sent his wife and his four daughters to meet D.L. Moody in England. And what had happened was their ship collided with another ship and it caused their ship to sink, losing most of the people that were on board. And all four of his daughters died tragically at sea. His wife, Anna, gets back to England and reports back to Chicago and telling Horatio Spafford, all four of your daughters have died. I'm the only one in our family who survived. Horatio Spafford then immediately gets on ship to be with his wife, Anna, and be with D.L. Moody And as he's um, crossing the sea and as he gets to the very place that his daughters were lost at sea, the captain tells him where the 
the coordinates of the location was. And Horatio Spafford, with sadness and reflecting on God's character, goes back to his cabin, and he begins to write. And these are the words that he wrote. He wrote, When sorrows like sea billow roll, whatever thou lot hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford wrote a very famous hymn we sing often at Integrity Church, It is well with my soul. Reflecting on the suffering that he saw, but also the goodness of Christ in the midst of suffering. I would love to tell you that his suffering ended there. It didn't. Horatio Spafford, Spafford years later, they had three more children, uh, one son and two daughters, and later his son also died of scarlet fever, just under four years old. He lost business. He lost real estate. He lost five of his seven children. But he declared his trust in God's sovereignty. And he and his wife, Anna, and their two children then moved to Jerusalem, and they helped found the American colony in Jerusalem, which was to serve the poor. And they also spent much of their lives helping war victims who were wounded in World War II. And right now, Horatio Spafford is buried in Jerusalem. I tell you that story because what suffering did for Horatio Spafford, it took him to a point where he lost everything to realize that he already had everything. He had Christ. And by losing everything in the world, what forced him to lean on Christ was in, I'm going to make Christ known. He would have probably never ended up helping World War I victims, and he probably never would have ended up serving the poor in Jerusalem and giving his life sacrificially for the gospel had he not suffered and realized that what is given to you in the world will never completely satisfy you. That Christ is your true home and that Christ is your true satisfaction, that Christ is your true joy. And so why do you suffer? You suffer so that you can learn to trust God. And friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that you, as a believer in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the ability to suffer for the gospel. All of us can have the same faith that Horatio Spafford and his wife Anna had. All of us can have the same faith that the Apostle Paul had in seeing the suffering that's in front of him and seeing it as it can draw you to Christ and cause you to have joy. And so my hope is that we would have this perspective. My hope is that we would see suffering as a way to advance the gospel, that we would see suffering believing that in Christ surpasses everything else. And so what I challenge you to do this morning is your suffering. My challenge for you is to trust that God will use it for your good and for his glory. My, tr- my hope also, my challenge for you is this, that you would do as the Apostle Paul was challenging the church at Philippi to do. And that's to share suffering with one another. Verse 27 again, he says, You're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. God does not want you to suffer alone. He wants us to suffer in community so that our faith can grow together. And so it's my hope this morning that we as a church, we would own verse 27. And we would be a church that when we suffer, we would suffer well for the gospel. Amen. God help us. Father, we trust you now. We trust you with your word.